Dear, dear listener, hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast, it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. In this segment, Lama Suridas invites us into a reflection on how we can apply timeless spiritual wisdom to our daily lives and to the great issues of our times. How then should we live, given that we now have both ancient spiritual practices and wisdom available, and yet growing levels of social unrest, ever-accelerating change, and deepening global risks? Welcome to Deep Transformation. Self, society, spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists, with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice, peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. You did those, you know, the total of almost seven years in that continuous practice. And, and of course, you've done many other retreats, not only in, in Tibetan Buddhism, but in a variety of other practices too, yoga and contemplations of various different types. But, but since the three-year retreat is such a kind of spiritual marathon, and, and so since so few of us will actually do it, could you just say a little about what some of the main main things that you imbibed or awoke to or learned or experienced or were gifted with during that time? Yeah, all of that stuff. Right. Well, yeah. yes, uh, it was during the 1980s. I started, I guess I was 30 years old. Mm, well, lessons learned and also like specifics about practices and structures could be talked about. But let me back up and say the first real retreat I went on was a Zen retreat in 1968 when I was a freshman at college in the Rochester Zen Center with Philip Kaplow Roshi, the first American Zen master. And you can look at his wonderful books, including The Three Pillars of Zen, a real classic about Satori and other things. Kaplow. And, but I was too young and I went back to the dormitory with my roommate and hitchhiked back to Buffalo. And it was too hard to meditate in the morning. First of all, it was hard to get up in the morning in those days. Second, the, the smoke was thick in the air. Need I say more? It's 1968, college. But then when I graduated from college, I went and one of the first things that happened in India was Mirabai Bush and John Krishna Bush. I met them there and we went on some Himalayan trek for a week up in the mountains above the tree line. It was great to a sacred cave of Shiva. But then when they came back, there was a letter from Mr. Gawanka's secretary. And so they invited me or, you know, we were no notified there was going to be a 10 day. We used to call them Gawanka course or Vipassana course retreat, silent, intensive 10 day retreat in another part of India. Now we call it mindfulness and metta, loving kindness, and insight meditation. So I went to that, and then I kept going to those 
mindfulness and metta, those insight meditation retreats in those years. And then there are other kinds of retreats, the long and short. So in retreat, you have like a schedule and you practice all day and it's broken up and you have teachings once or twice a day, maybe practical instructions, not book learning, and you keep silent and vegetarian. And in those retreats, no meals after lunch. So it was fairly austere and it wasn't like going to Canyon Ranch or Esalen with the good meals and your private bathroom. And, you know, we used to say phone in the room. Now everybody has a cell phone, but in those days... I don't know if I ever made a phone call the first half year I was in India. It just wasn't a part of the reality. I'm not to mention other communications, internet, so on. CNN, not there. So eventually, when I was 30, and my lamas, Kala Rinpoche and others, had come from the cave retreat yogi tradition of Tibet, of Milarepa, of Longchenpa, and Jigangrinpa, the great long lineage going back to Buddhist time of retreat. And so the, he encouraged us to do three a three-month retreat. It was kind of like llama training. And so I hesitated and this and that, and then eventually did it. And it was practically the best thing I ever did. And it was wonderful. And I did learn a few things over those three years and eight months or nine months, whatever it was. Like, love is not the same as like. It was like being married to a small song of 20, 20 odd with hyphen people take away the hyphen 20 odd people from different continents, including a couple <laughs> 20 odd people. And, you know, it's like being married to them and eating together and et cetera, keeping silent and meditating, praying, chanting together half the hours of the day in one or two hour increments and the other half in our, let's call it monastic cell, our room. And some of us didn't have a bed, but a meditation seat or box, as they call it in Tibetan. So you sit up meditating and in the clear light and more awareness while you're sleeping for lucid dreaming and things that Andrew Holacek teaches us. I know he's been on the podcast. He's brilliant. And Tibetan dream yoga and other things, ancient timeless teachings. So... You get very close to people and you realize, even though you don't like or agree with everybody, you know, love, you know where they're coming from. Yeah. You would be voting the same way. You'd be doing the same thing if you came from where they're coming from. That's helped me unbelievably a lot in moving in the direction of unconditional love, of open-hearted, divine love, of being who and what one really aspires to be in spiritual life, if you want to call it that, or just in humanistic society, you know, humanistic way of living. And I can love, love is big, 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 bigger than the dichotomies of like and dislike or agree and disagree. So that has helped me enormously in life and understand how to love and be patient or forbearant or tolerant or interested or caring, empathic even, when I don't like, or even if somebody harms me or criticizes me. And admittedly, those things are challenging, but that's the direction of true spiritual life. And the divine love that, you know, has, comes through us and can come through us, and not just loving a few people. Mother Teresa, who I admire and I met once or twice in Calcutta, at her nunnery, let's call it, said that, Loneliness is the cancer 
of modern life, loneliness, alienation, the cancer of modern life. And because we draw our circle of loving too small. I mean, hopefully we do love our loved ones. And, you know, parents and pets and in-laws and neighbors and friends. But divine unconditional love is still inconceivable to us. But we can go in that direction and love others and not without expectation of return, including loving ourselves. How can we love and accept others, really, if we don't love and accept ourselves? So we work on this with practices like bodhicitta or altruistic compassion practices in Mahayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. So we did that in Fuyu. My teachers modeled that. I was saying that before, seeing beings, people that modeled it and lived it, turned my head around. I was 20 and a half year old when I landed with, in India and these gurus overland through the hippie trail, the Asian trail from London, across overland to the Middle East, countries we can't go to anymore, like Afghanistan and, and around, you know, Pakistan, Kyrgyzstan, India, and Nepal, the hippie trail ending in Kathmandu because China was closed, the border was closed. I was so young, and it made such an impression on me. There were actually people who lived like that. Colin J. lived like that. But Winker was so loving, he seemed to live like that. I mean, I didn't know much of that personal life. I wasn't his buddy and friend. But you know, I went to many retreats with him, these 10-day courses, and he and his wife lived like that. It was unbelievable, even though he was a bit retired businessman and had family and kids and grandchildren. And I thought, wow, it's not just one Jesus or one Buddha in ancient history that can you know, turn the other cheek or whatever all those things are that Jesus said that I never knew how to do. Nobody taught me how to actually do it when I was growing up in the churches and pulpits and synagogues and you know, classes and things that I went to growing up. And yet the family life was was full of love and acceptance and a little bit of pushing, but that's okay. And it's, that was one big lesson I want to emphasize. Love is bigger than dichotomies of like and dislike. And Living and practicing and surrendering and accepting made such a difference in that very long cloistered Dzogchen retreat, Tibetan Buddhist retreat with my masters. And then another lesson is in my beloved, still alive teacher, Tukul Pema Wangel Rinpoche, who still flies below the radar unbelievably and hasn't published any books, but he's the head of Pema translations and other beautiful things. He always, he occasionally used to say, don't expect the struggle to end. That was such a great teaching. He spoke English. He grew up in India in the 60s and 50s as a Tibetan refugee with his father and family and siblings, mother. He, you know, we all went to three-year retreat thinking we're going to fly out of there under our own power, like rainbow, I don't know what, Garudas, a celestial eagle or something. But, you know... After, even after three or four year retreat, we're back pounding the pavements again in daily life. And how how did that shift? So went to another retreat. You know, I'm a slow learner, so I shouldn't be proud that I did two of those long retreats and some other things. Slow learner. Was it difficult to go back into the world after your your first retreat? I mean, to, yes to and no. Okay. 
I had already done what I would call the most difficult things in my life. So in India and Himalayas and in retreat. So it wasn't that difficult. But yes, there was a huge culture shock. The first couple of days that we came out of the cloistered retreat in the forest and some of my friends who were more sensitive, no doubt, than me, the first time they got in the car, they threw up from the fumes, not just the movement. We hadn't been in a car, near a car for three and a half years. I touched money. We used to pad around our retreat center in flip-flops and, and, and slippers because we never went out except the courtyard and look at each other like we were mental patients. It was funny. Take me to your temple. I'm practicing mindful walking. Uh, I'm exaggerating, but not entirely. And we don't want to become zombies in the name of spiritual practice. There are people that always have to whisper and can't use the word I in a sentence. That's a little too much. We find them in our new age circles, maybe not so much now in the postmodern time, but we used to in the new age era. So, And when Dharma was new in the West, we were imitating and not really integrating and applying. Now I think we need an applied Dharma that suits today and can handle, you know, cell phone. Yes, I have a cell phone. Unbelievable. Yes, I am Zooming. Yes, I also have a bowl and a gong, you know. I mean, what's old and what's new? Yes, I have beads and things. But it's not that important. I've been watching the tennis, the U.S. Open. It's fantastic. I love these yogi masters, the master best in the world at what they do. Fantastic. Yeah, your love for baseball is is pretty much my love for playing tennis. That's a that's that's a wonderful practice. You're watching the Open and seeing all the upsets and the young, the younger is coming along. I mean, that's exactly as it should be. It's wonderful, and the elders, you know, still great like Serena. So how long was it, Surya, between your your first three years and nine months or whatever it was till the next time? And what was the uh, – well, I mean, that's a radical thing to do once in a lifetime. But what was it the, – did you have a, a teacher just say, all right, back in the oven? Or no. were you just what, – what was the, the motivation for that? Well, I had been living in India for a long time, so I didn't have, like, a family or a job or – home or, you know, I say other things, bank accounts, health insurance and commitments back home in, in the States. So I wanted to keep practicing. So then we built another smaller retreat center for the 13 or 14 of us that wanted to continue. And we and with our teachers blessing and we invited them and they came again and things like that. And so there's about a six month hiatus where I went back to New York to visit and sold some things that I maybe still had and made some, you know, collected some money. Like, I think I sold my guitar, my singer sewing machine or something. I don't know. And came back and built a retreat, a, a farmhouse into another retreat center and put some walls around it. And then we gave our retreat center to the new group that wanted to use it because there were 23 rooms, part for men and part for women in our original three-year retreat center. And so, after six months, we started up again, and the late Dzogchen Master Jim Rinpoche and Dingo Kinsey Rinpoche, the Dalai Lama Dzogchen Guru, started up and gave us a bunch of empowerments. And all. that was in uh, 1984 or 5, and that went on to, I don't know, 1988 or 9. 
it just didn't seem like there was anything else to do. And I didn't want to be going back and traveling around in India and developing countries and struggling all the time to get visas and potable water and decent food and live in the third class trains and ashrams and refugee camp monasteries as we did. I wanted to practice. We had a perfect practice place and sangha and group and the learning and practice and community. Fellowship is just unbelievable. So that's, you know, that's what happened. It was just a, a wonderful. And then the late Dujan Rinpoche, the head of our Mingmapa school, Dujan Rinpoche passed away there at his house near there in 1989 at about age 85. That was a bit the end of that phase. And then we did ritual. We meditated around his body, uh, you know, his like remains for a year and took it to Nepal to be enshrined there at his monastery in a stupa monument where people still you know go for pilgrimage today. So that was kind of the end of that phase and then got into translating and was part of the original Padmakara translation group, which does a lot of Dzogchen and Tibetan Buddhist books today in different languages, not just English, because they're centered in southern France at our retreat center, Padmakara. Then people start to invite me to come and teach, and specifically to teach Dzogchen, like the Vipassana teachers, Joe Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and others to teach at their center, Insight Meditation in Massachusetts, and Jack Hornfield in California, at Spirit Rock, and Zen Center, um, and, you know, San Francisco, and other places. So I started teaching around Europe and America, and then going back to Nepal, back and forth, and I brought my llamas and taught with them, you know, Shoken Rinpoche and others, and translated for them and wrote a book for Kempo Rinpoche, Natural Great Perfection. And that's the way it happened. And then I realized that I love teaching and practice and practicing with people and meditating with people and started the Zogchen Center as a platform for that and organizing retreats and we ended up at a retreat center outside Austin, Texas for many years, had 100-day retreats there every autumn, things like that, as well as shorter retreats. So I kind of come up through the retreat lineage. But I do want to say I don't think any of us should fantasize about doing a three-year retreat unless that's really, you know, your true vocation, like monks and nuns have a true vocation. But most of us today, that's not it. So maybe it's good to start somewhere and spend a little more time with daily practice and integrating it into daily life and learning how to do it, not just trying to do it because you heard about it, but getting a little training and practice and studying how a little studying theory and practice goes together well and maybe go to a weekend or three-day retreat or one-day retreat like we have coming up, of course, virtually these days, October 1st. With a master class that I'm giving next Saturday, one Saturday a month virtually for the Zogchen Center. But there's so many ways you can learn today. I don't need to mention but every teacher is on and practice instructors on YouTube, is on podcasts. There are good books. There are guided audios you can hear. Just click on. But if you can go to something like I don't know that I would have learned just from going to a Zen weekend. I had to go to a 10-day silent intensive meditation retreat with Goenka G. Goenka. Yeah, there is something unique about retreat. 
uh, to, to be able to be in silence and just be able to devote oneself full time to practice is certainly the most powerful transformative discipline I know. And not being in your social life, you know, not to say anything wrong with social life or family or fun or anything like that, but you go into retreat because it's silent and, you know, you're manos, you're supposed to be alone together. Manos, monk, manos, nunk, nanos. So you're not in your social persona. You don't have to always keep putting your foot, best foot forward like a crab sidling through life trying to push your best foot forward and only show your good profile to the camera. And what kind of life is that? So you're just alone with God in, in retreat in the forest or in solid, noble solitude, noble silence, and noble attentive awareness. Attentive awareness, presence of mind, attentive awareness, soulful heart. That's the whole thing. Not just parroting prayers without paying attention. That's no good to anybody. It's hard, not even a prayer, really. Just sounds. So I still teach retreats. We're doing it online. Some people are starting to have them again as the COVID lifts and finding other ways to do things and their pluses and minuses everywhere. But I think today, integration is the name of the game, not fantasizing going abroad to find gurus who will enlighten you with a touch or within a week or within a month or even within a year. I don't know. I mean, how long does it take to awaken? No one can really say. How long does it take to fall in love? How long does it take to awaken? A moment? 10 days? A year? 20 years? I mean, there's the gradual way of looking things, and there's the timeless or sudden way, and both are uh, co-existent or co-emergent at the same time. We can't overlook it. We always hear, get into the flow, Joe. But who remembers the flow is going through us already right now? So get into the flow, get with it, get aligned, you know, practice makes perfect, is the gradual incremental path, and it's very important to all of us in the world, uh, learning arithmetic or the alphabet comes before the next part of those subjects, obviously. And on the other side, there's the other part, like children are learning machines. They're just like antenna absorbing everything, not just what the words you try to tell them. So there's that too. It's already alive, the awareness. Fully there, although the potential is yet to be realized and stabilized and actualized and then used, like directed. Like the hands of God still, you know, there's different hands, there's different work. Mother Teresa was like the hands of God with the poor people in Asia, specifically Calcutta in India. Dr. Schweitzer in Africa, a little different. Buddha, Thich Nhat Hanh, the great peace activist of Vietnam, a little different. So what about you, listener, dear friend? What about me? Spirituality and these things is awakening is very personal. I mean, it's not impersonal, it's transpersonal. It has to fit oneself like one's own shoes. You can't just wear Italian shoes because somebody told you they were the best if you have triple E feet like moi. It has to be fitting or suitable. Or go barefoot. That's also been tried.
earlier you spoke to awakening. We throw that term around a lot these days. How do you how do you point to that? Like this, I, I think it is a mutual reciprocity about it all. Mm-hmm. If Buddhism points in the forest and there's no one there, then what? So the famous story is Buddha held up a flower and one follower, I hate to say monk, one follower, Sabudi, I think, out of the gathering, smiled. And Buddha said, he's the successor, he got it. So it's still mutual. Otherwise, there's no two. If there's no two, there's no enlightenment, there's, there's no nirvana and samsara. But in the ultimate, there's no two and there's no, you know, nothing to point at and no one to point and all that. And it's not just in, in Dzogchen or high mysticism or Buddhism. The female mystic of England, I don't know, 800 years ago, it might have been Matilda of Meserich or the other one. Now you've seen one, you've seen them all. She said, all is well. This is a Christian woman mystic. All is well and all shall be well in this best of all possible worlds. So holy crap. That's the teaching of natural great perfection. From a Christian a nun, I think she was, eight or nine hundred years ago. Hildegard von Bingen, is that who it was? It might have been Hildegard. It might have been Matilda Meserich. There's a nice book of Christian mystics of those days, of women mystics you can look up. The point is that's the absolute truth. And yet still there's the relative truth of trying to help the poor, help the sick, be helpful, help yourself. Make a better world and a better life and a better future that begins now. I mean, it would be insane not to. You can't just whitewash it all and say it's all perfect as it is. It's God's will. Then you end up not taking your children to the doctor like some religionists. In case you don't know, the Christian scientists founded here in Boston have that situation. It's not necessarily a happy situation for those children, at least. who die sometimes. So... The middle way, again, acceptance and transformation, let's say, effort and effortless. If you read the Tao Te Ching, The Way and Its Power, I recommend Stephen Mitchell's great translation, The Tao Te Ching. You can learn a lot about this, the balance of doing and being, and that non-doing is not just passivity. It's about flow. It's about the zone. It's a fantastic, the wisest book ever written, according to me. Surya, you've been teaching for several decades now. Uh, as you look into the next phase of your life, what what would you like to be doing? How would you like to be continuing your transmission? healthy, harmonious, and helpful. The three H's. (laughs) I didn't put in happy on purpose, but that could fit too. We think about our own happiness and unhappiness maybe too much sometimes. But healthy, harmonious, and helpful. Uh, Specifically, I'm writing and teaching, counseling younger people and some young writers 
spiritual activism. I don't know. When I listen to the news, when I think about the environmental degradation and crisis and other things, it could be depressing. But whenever I talk to a young person and look into their eyes, I irrationally feel hopeful and enthusiastic, and I just want to help lift them up, boost them, back them. Should I say get out of their way? Back them and get out of their way, too. So that's all I know. To be with young people, the kids. I have a lot of bambinos in my life and grand bambinos and god bambinos and et cetera. So that's also a delight. Yes, John. Yeah, I was reading in your rereading uh, your book, preparing for this, and there was this. We should, John, we should mention the name of the book. You held it up before, but you didn't give the title, Awakening oh, the Buddha Within. No, I, was, I was way too quick with it, too. There it is. Backwards. Awakening the Buddha Within. Yes, let's do it. But there was a part where you were talking about the, the conviction of cherishing life and not killing. And then you gave the story of this monastery in the Catskills, I think, or back northeast someplace. Yes. And they were getting overrun with cockroaches. Yes. And, you know, it's like we can't invite new people in. They're going to close us down because of our health risks. And so and and the part that stood out to me, they they really got together and hammered it out. And besides praying and fine meditating, they just had this arguments or discursive things. And I've seen that in the Tibetan tradition that people don't just sit around. They get down and they talk and they argue and they work on points. And the, the Jewish Hasidic tradition, you know, they'll take a little bit of Torah and just go after it. And I think that is so beautiful. And and I, actually, I miss it because we live in a time when we're so divided. You know, if you think you're enlightened, Ken, you should say, go home for the holidays, right? And if you, you know, you mentioned something that sounds woke, man, you're going to, damn, and it's just like, but it, it's not helpful. It's hurtful. So is that part of your tradition, this, this kind of working and struggling with, with ideas and concepts and issues and moral issues until something, a guidance of, or wisdom emerges? Yeah, definitely. In Tibetan, it's called logical debate or say epistemological debate, like arguing or discussing, investigating, clarifying the meaning of meaning. And how we know what we know, epistemology and so on. So, yes. And like I said before, one of the seven factors of enlightenment, according to Buddha's original teaching, is investigation and questioning. So not just to believe what's been passed down or what Buddha said. So that's very much important for us. And it is a true story about the KTD monastery in Woodstock that I was part of the founding of in 79 or 8, about the cockroaches and all. I'm not going to pick on New York, but a lot of people come from New York and the cockroaches come too out of their suitcases. <laughs> so it was being overrun by cockroaches after a couple of years of being open. And people, the Buddhists are very nonviolent and very concerned. And, you know, even the monks and the abbot, the Kempo and everything, and the two incarnate lamas were all discussing and arguing what to do. It was like, do we just let it be and hand it over, let the cockroaches take over? Or do we, you know, call the exterminator like some American on the board of directors suggested? And so they called home to the, you left this out, they called home to the mothership in the Himalayas, to the, the their home monastery, the Karmapas Monastery in Rumtek, and they got the word. The next day they called the exterminator. And I saw this like van coming up the 
the hill is a big hill overlooking Wisdom New York with a giant plastic like bug warrior on top holding one of those pump, you know, term, I don't know what it's called, termite, you know, gas blasters. It was like a, a plastic image of just what everybody wants in their house when they're overrun by cockroaches. And there were no more cockroaches for a while. You know, in your book, it's not clear that you were there. So they didn't just do it like impetuously, you know, like mosquitoes itching. Just like, why do you want to kill it? Just, just give you a little itch. You might think before you act. So there was a lot of care and compassion and attention generated for, before they did that. They were, and they prayed for a long time afterward about it too, to expiate the karma and not, not to kill, not to harm, to protect life, animal as well as human and so on. But they had to do what had to be done. That's the middle way. And they prayed while you prayed. It sounds like yeah. you were actually there yeah, while was. they were exterminating or whatever they do. Well, the exterminating was going on, you know, visibly to me. But And we were like praying. And then it went on for some days, the uh, chants and prayers about that and the lessons that were discussed. Yes. And of course, there's room for discussion and argument. Like in the Jewish tradition, they're always arguing about the Torah and the Talmud, the meaning of the wisdom traditions and well, God's will and how we should live. The arguments about how should we live? How shall I live? Not just if there should be 420 rules or 421. How should we live? Isn't that a big question for all of us? How should we live? How should we, you know, what is our true work or vocation? How should we eat? How should we treat ourselves and each other? How, how should we live? That's the universal, timeless question. That's the question. Yes. Yeah. And easy answer. If you want easy answers, there's the Red Book, there's the Gospel, Ten Commandments. You know, there's a lot of collections of easy answers, but does it is that enough for oneself? Not enough for me. Well, you're pointing to a very important distinction, Surya, between the simple reaching for external guidance as opposed to looking within for and wrestling with these questions oneself, which actually reflect two quite distinct psychological stages of development. One, the conventional stage where one looks for an outside authority and effectively gives one authority over to it. And it's not to deny in any way that there are enormous numbers of wise people who have given very good advice, which we do need to imbibe. But there's a stage beyond the conventional, so the initial so-called post-conventional stages where people begin to really look for themselves and, and become self-authoring, self-authors of their own moral code and lifestyle. And that's, that seems essential for, to all of us to move to at this stage, not to, to, to be open to the best wisdom that's available to us and yet be willing to wrestle with the questions anew for ourselves. That's kind of the quest and to find out for ourselves, as it were. Not that we all have to, you know, reinvent the wheel each time, but we still have to go through it. Like, you can't just read about falling in love or find out from your older sibling about it until you experience it for yourself. You don't really know what it is. So, I don't know. We hear a lot about words like freedom, independence, etc. Today, these are kind of buzzwords or compassion even. But what I want to say is, of course, there is the inherent freedom of being. We're free to do whatever we want or intend or wish, something like that. 
But if we have to accept the implications, the outcome, that's the law of karma. If you do, you know, if you cultivate unwholesomeness, somehow it comes back and bites you. Everybody says this, but it's hard to remember when you're doing it. You know, what goes around comes around. Even in the Bible, it says you reap what you've sown. So the law of karma is not just something airy-fairy or Eastern imported. Not anymore. Action is a reaction. Right. And for every action is a reaction in kind. Even physics talks like that. And energy is neither created nor destroyed. It circulates around for every action is a reaction more or less in kind. And it's not just that bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. But in the long run, if you follow the universal laws, just like farming, if you follow what the older farmers and generations have found works, then you're more likely to have it work. Of course, it also depends on the weather and other imponderables. But still, you get into the general flow in your hemisphere. We plant in the spring and harvest in the fall. It doesn't work well the other way, although you're free to try as much as you want. <laughs> and, you know, that's about interconnection and interdependence. Nothing happens in isolation. Interconnection, interdependence. But not just being an independent like a teenager. We have to move from dependence to independence, not codependence, independence, and then realize interdependence, you know, autonomy within interdependence. That's where freedom and fulfillment lies. Autonomy, finding autonomy within interdependence, like being principle-centered, not just following the herd, of, like the lemmings going over the cliff in the famous cartoons. So I think this is very good lessons for us today. And of course, we hear a lot about this from the Buddhist or the Asian side about karma and interdependence, interconnectedness. But look at the world we live in, how interconnected it is. Not just the global culture, but how about the environment, the global environment, and the and the the air we breathe and the water. After the oil wars, I'm afraid we're going to have the water wars. When potable water becomes an extremely valuable and increasingly rare resource, they say. We're one small globe, but a bucky full called Spaceship Earth, and we're all the co-pilot as well as passengers on it. So anyway, I have hope, irrationally, but hope's the thing with feathers, you know, you can contemplate that. <laughs> it's funny, but it has some lift. Yeah. So, Sir, as, as we come towards the end of our time, is there any, are there anything else, any other topics you'd like to bring up, anything else you'd like to say? I have another question. All so, right. Yes. John has something to say. Yeah. What at this at this point in your journey, Surya? What does your practice look like? What is your kind of day? And I know it probably changes from moment. But what what time do you get up? How long do you sit? Or do you need to sit anymore? Or you know how how does this go? I think it'd be very instructive. Uh, and, and I'm a practice junkie. Been a major member of my life. So how do you like you and Roger? I'm also a, a meditation addict. Not addict. I didn't say that. <laughs> yeah. So in a way, I need to. But also, I need to less. I mean, I'd like to do more, and that's part of the addiction and the way we're brought up, just like I'd like to play more sports and, and you know, other things. I'd be outside in nature and on the beach. But I'm satisfied. I'm not going to go as far as say everything is meditation, but everything is part of life, and therefore the spirit. 
there's still meditation and post meditation. So I meditate every day. I meditate in the morning and sometimes at night, often during the day at random hours. Uh, I always, always, I very often find myself outside meditating just because I'm, I like being outside and going to beautiful places and sky gazing or ocean listening and dissolving different sort of, I don't know, sort of Jenny or shamanic type practices. It's easy to lose oneself and find one's true way being self in nature, I find. So I do it, you know, I, I guess I still need to do it. I like to do it. Desire and need and effort are like an interesting, you know, complex. So I think it's important. I, I like to meditate with people. I like to chant with people. I like to pray. I, I, I write prayers sometimes just because they come up in my prayer practice life. Eventually I write them down. Just like I write poems, I always have, I guess. Yeah, I think uh, practice is perfect. You just do it. And if you have something you want to perfect or get better at, then practice makes perfect. And you got to do it. You, you need to do it. I love it. What can I say? You know, I've been saying this for years and nobody's taking me up on it. We're, we have the book, The Joy of Sex, and there's probably a bunch of other ones. The Joy of Moving Your Soul and Cheese and The Joy of Chicken Soup. Where's the joy of meditation? That's the book I'm never going to write, but I feel it and I talk about it. The joy of meditation, catching the updrift, not always flapping and sweating and trying to get lift off like in the beginning. I come from New York. I have a bit of a New York motor mind, motor mouth. People often say to me, I can't meditate. My mind's too busy. So that's a good jumping off point. So thank you. Let's talk about that. Meditation isn't just about stopping your mind or your thoughts, about awareness of whatever arises, whatever is, whatever comes. And we can deal with that. There's breathing exercises, there's awareness practice, cultivation. Also, there's different kinds of meditation, not just quietist type meditation. There's walking meditation, there's yoga meditation and movement meditation, like Tai Chi and Qigong and martial arts. There's Zen meditation, like through gardening and every practical thing. Zen in the art of gardening. To me, writing, and especially creative writing, not necessarily deadline-y, journalistic, professional writing, but my poetry notebooks and notebooks and translate studies is like meditation to me. It's an important part of my spiritual life. And the more I do it, the better. I guess I need to do that. The muse amuses me like that. Hey, Surya, as we're closing out, do you think that maybe there's a poem of yours that you could read us or recite to us to kind of to wrap this thing up? I think that would be beautiful. I don't know. Sure. Why not? Thank you. I like to show off by ch- chanting Basho's great haiku about the frog jumping into the pond and the splash reciting in Japanese, but I didn't write that. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to give you something I found in my notebook from the 90s, and I I don't know, I might put in my memoir, although it's a little bit personal. I mean, you know, when you write a memoir, I mean, you don't want it to be personal. <laughs> you don't want to be exposed in public, like Emily Dickinson says, like like a naked frog 
to an admiring Bob, just quoting Dickinson. Once upon a time, I was no more. Though it lasted not, one must live as if it were true. That's the way it is sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a poem. Yeah. Thank you, Surya. <laughs> you know, the brain, the mind is like a popcorn machine, but there's a limit to how much we need to butter it up. <laughs> Sometimes you just let it pop. You know? uh, Necessarily need more buttering up, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you well, so much, Surya, for this. It's really been a super blessing for me to, to be with, with both of you and, and everyone who's going to be with us. Thank you. and both of you for doing this podcast and ongoingly it's needed and wanted and I feel you know we're putting the effort into it. and I pass the word to my network and my students and friends so thank you well, thank, thank you Surya and thank you for your life all the hard long hard and joyful practice you've put in to be to be the resource and source that you are and uh, be the wonderful <laughs> creator of popcorn, of a <laughs> never-ending fountain of popcorn of ideas, which and each of them, all of them blessings, all of them results of deep inside, hard, hard-won wisdom, but also joyful wisdom. So thank you. I, it's it's just been today has been a delight, and I'm so grateful for the last twenty twenty something years of studying with you. <laughs> Thank you, dear friend. It's been quite, can I end with a prayer? Please. In that realm, some of us anyway. Please. At the turn of the millennium in Boston, they asked me to make a millennium prayer on the radio. And it was a funny time. Everybody's worrying about what's going to happen with Y2K. So anyway, this prayer came up and I read it on the radio at midnight on the turn of the century. May all beings everywhere with whom we are inseparably interconnected and who want and need the same as we do, may all be awakened, liberated, healed, harmonious, and free. May there be peace in this world, outer and inner peace, and an end to war and violence, disease, famine, inequality. And may we all together complete this marvelous spiritual journey. And I bow to the Buddha, the light, the divine, the goddess in your seat. Don't overlook them. Surya, thank you so much. I feel like that could be a, a prayer for, for all of us for all time and for our podcast. Certainly, we would, I think, both John and I and our team all open pray that it can be a time together with people with you and with people like you can be a uh, a resource and a source of inspiration and uplift and joy and love for, for all who listen and through them for the world so thank you very much thank you be well love to one and all today's episode was brought to you by i wake technologies Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. Thank you for joining us. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.